We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Judges. Three hundred nineteen years that they've been now in this promised land, but he rounds it off. He goes, you know, we've been here for three hundred years. Why are you just now having to, you know, pick on us and want to fight with us? The Amorites are the people who took your land, not us. We took it from the Amorites. And if that isn't bad enough, then Chemosh should be fighting for you and give you back your land. So that's what he's saying. Well, that's going to be the end of diplomacy, right? When you're like making fun of your gods that haven't defended you for 300 years. When we hear talk about idols and worshiping gods, it all sounds archaic in our modern culture. It seems kind of ridiculous to imagine bowing down to a statue or some made-up being. But we have our share of idols and gods that we trust in today. Science, medicine, knowledge, and politics are a few common ones. These aren't bad in and of themselves, but as we'll be reminded in today's message from Pastor Gary, when we put our faith in these things, we'll quickly find out how limited they truly are. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Judges, chapter 10, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Now, it says there that worthless men banded together with Jephthah. It doesn't mean that these guys were worthless in the sense of they had no value. It just means worthless in the sense that they were poor. They were penniless. They didn't have anything. And uh, these poor guys, financially, materially speaking, they band together with Jephthah, and then they just go, you know, they go raiding. They, this is, you know, like the Wild West. Uh, this is the Wild West of Tove and Gilead, and they're just, they're just going around raiding with him. Well, verse 4 says, And it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. And then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? That's a fair question. That's a fair question. So here's what's happening. You know, the people of Gilead, the Israelites are seeing the forces of Ammon coming against them. 
They don't have a leader. There's no judge in Israel at this time. And so the elders of Gilead think, you know, who's, who's really kind of tough? Who's like a cowboy that we can really, you know, turn to who's going to fight for us and lead us? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, Jephthah. He's going around raiding communities. This guy's a beast. We need to go get him. And they're like, okay. So then they go to Tova and they find him and say, hey, we need you to come back and be our leader. And Jephthah's like, oh, yeah, sure. You kicked me out. We don't want me. And now you're in distress and you want me. How convenient is that? A side note here, I just want to interject this. He is going to be a man that God raises up. And I love the way he's referred to in verse 1 as a mighty man of valor. Do you remember that Gilead, uh, sorry, not Gilead, Gideon was also referred to as a mighty man of valor. Even though at the time they didn't necessarily see themselves that way. What I love about the story of Jephthah, there's some problems in this story. But one of the things I love about this story is that his family of origin was not nearly as important as his relationship with God. Because God is going to use this guy who's been rejected by his family of origin. God is going to use this guy to be a mighty leader in the land of Israel. That's important for us to recognize because sometimes we need to be reminded that our heritage in the Lord is much more important than your heritage of origin. God can take our lives no matter what kind of family we came out of. Jephthah comes out of this family that rejected him. His mom was a prostitute. And yet God's going to take this guy and use him for his glory as a leader in the land of Israel. Don't ever think that because you came from this kind of family or that kind of family, that somehow that makes you unusable? No. In service to the Lord, he often chooses the despised things, the things that don't seem to be of wise standards to show himself strong in the life of an individual. And so no matter what your family of origin or what your beginnings, God will use you for his glory. And he's, that's what he's going to do here with Jephthah. So Jephthah pushes back and he's like, you know, Isn't this convenient? You want me now. You didn't want me then. But nevertheless, he's going to go. Verse 8, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? You know, he wants a little confirmation here. You're going to take me back home and you're going to actually make me your leader. I love the way, by the way, he says, if you take me back home. Tov was never really his home. That's just where he fled to because he was rejected. He wanted to go back home. And so he asks, are you going to make me your leader if I go to all this effort? It says in verse 10, and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. And then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon saying, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? Okay. They now have installed him as judge. The words he spoke before the Lord in Mizpah means that he made this commitment to God that he would be God's man for this hour. So God has divinely orchestrated this using the elders of Gilead to move Jephthah into this place of 
leadership as a judge in Israel. The first thing that he does is diplomacy. That's the first thing that he does with the army of Ammon. He sends a messenger to say to the armies, to the leaders of Ammon, what do you have against me? Why do you want to come fight against me and against Israel here? So he tries the, the diplomacy first. It isn't going to work, but he tries it. Verse 13, and the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. And so Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. And he said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Now, I'm going to pause here in what he's saying here, because I want you to understand what he's doing. He's actually about to quote an entire chapter from the book of Numbers. He knows his own... Uh, the history of Israel. So whether he actually is Gentile, like Josephus said he was, or whether he's Jewish, he certainly knows Jewish history. And he's going to he's going to recite here basically an entire chapter from Numbers and some sections from the book of Deuteronomy. And he's going to recite to the king of Ammon. Here's what really happened. And so he, verse 17, and so he keeps reciting their history. He says, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. And so Israel remained in Kadesh and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. And so Sihon gathered all his people together and camped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the land, into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. And thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites, notice, who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will not, will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time. Pause. Let me explain what he's saying here. What he's basically saying is this. We didn't take your land. The Amorites took your land. Okay. Now he's talking again. You got to watch the spelling. The Ammonites are ready to attack the Israelites. But the, but uh, Jephthah is saying, Hey, listen, we didn't take your land. The Amorites took your land. Ammonites. 
But what happened was in the wilderness wandering from Egypt to the promised land, when we were ready to pass through your territory, the Amorites occupied your territory at that time. We defeated them. They stole your land, not us. So when we defeated them, we just took their territory. You, you, if you have a beef, you have it with the Amorites. We took it from the Amorites. They took it from you. We didn't take it from you. That's what he's saying. But then he adds this little caveat, which is kind of like this little sarcasm here. And he goes, but after all now, because he's talking to the Ammonites. These are foreign people with foreign gods. He mentions the god Chemosh there in verse 24. He says, will you not possess whatever Chemosh your god gives you to possess? He's like, he's like listen, if you, if you really want to occupy a land, why don't you let your god Chemosh fight for you? See how that'll work out for you. Because he says, for the last 300 years, Chemosh hasn't helped you. For the last 300 years, since we've been in this land, and actually when, when you do the whole chronology of events, it's 319 years that they've been now in this promised land. But he rounds it off. He goes, you know, we've been here for 300 years. Why are you just now having to you know, pick on us and want to fight with us The Amorites are the people who took your land, not us. We took it from the Amorites. And if that isn't bad enough, then Chemosh should be fighting for you and give you back your land. So that's what he's saying. Well, that's going to be the end of diplomacy, right? When you're like making fun of your gods that haven't defended you for 300 years. And so he says in verse 27, he finishes up by saying, Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, it says, because that's the end of the quote in verse 27, he's finished talking, but verse 28 says, However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Okay, no diplomacy here, we're going to war. And so verse 29 says, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Okay, so God's presence is going to come upon him. Remember in the Old Testament, which is where we are reading here, the Holy Spirit was not poured out upon all flesh like the Holy Spirit is poured out upon people today. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given on assignment to specific people for specific reasons. Uh, but, you know, when you get to Acts chapter 2 and you see when the New Testament church is born and the Holy Spirit falls on people, now the Holy Spirit is available to all who would believe and receive. But in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit only came upon certain individuals as assigned. Well, God's assigning the Holy Spirit to come upon Jephthah, to empower him, to go in God's power. And it says, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. So he's, he's on the offensive now with war. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now notice this. This is going to be the one thing that Jephthah is most remembered for. And it's sad because he's going to have a great victory here over the Ammonites and it gets just a couple of verses, but what he's going to always be remembered for is this vow. So notice, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you, if, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace, when he goes home, from the people of Ammon, whatever comes out my front door shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What? He's saying when I get home, 
Whatever comes out of the front door of my house, whatever that is, I'm going to sacrifice it to God. What, what's he thinking is going to come out of the front door of his house? You know, a billy goat or, or, or what? An in-law and, you know, a, a lawyer. What's he, what's he thinking here? But this is what he says. Now, we'll talk about it in a minute, but there's a very tragic ending to this vow. So keep reading. Let's see if we can get through the end of the chapter. And so Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. Okay, he's got the vic- he has the victory. And he defeated them from Aror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel-Kermim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. That's the end of the war. That's the only comment about the victory. Now, on to the result of the vow. Verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house of Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes And said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. And so she said to him, now notice her bravery. My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. And then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. And so he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Wow, was right. So there's this debate. Did he actually end up sacrificing his daughter? Scholars are equally divided. When you read different commentaries, some say, yes, he carried out his vow, he sacrificed her. Others say, no. Those who say no point to the word and in his original vow in verse 31. If you look back in verse 31, the word and in Hebrew in this sentence can sometimes be translated or. So those who believe that he didn't really... Um, sacrifice his daughter, read verse 31 this way. Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So the argument goes like this, that he's saying Either I will dedicate whatever walks out of my house to the Lord, or I will sacrifice it. If it is a 
family member, I will dedicate this family member to the Lord. If it is an animal, because sometimes, quite honestly, in that culture, your, your livestock would you know, wander in and out of your home. It's possible that an animal could have come out the front door of his house. I will sacrifice that. So some believe that he didn't really end up sacrificing his daughter. He dedicated her to the Lord, much in the same way that Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord and took young Samuel to the tabernacle where he served the priest and lived out the rest of his life and became a prophet and a judge himself. And some say that's what Hannah did. She dedicated Samuel. She, she gave him up. She literally had made a vow to God. I will give my son to you. I will dedicate him. So when he was born and after he was weaned, she gave Samuel to the Lord. He was raised in the tabernacle of the Lord. And that's what some believe that Japheth did here with his daughter. And this is why he, he bewails this because she's his only child. And now he's going to take her to the temple or the tabernacle, dedicate her and and never have her again in his home. She will be dedicated to the Lord, so she'll never get married. She will never have children. He will never have grandchildren. And so that's what one side of the argument is, that he just dedicated her. He didn't really sacrifice her. But I will tell you that that interpretation, that Jephthah just dedicated her, he didn't sacrifice her, is almost exclusively a Western interpretation because it appeals to our rational sensibility. We think to ourselves, there's no way on God's green earth a dad could actually sacrifice his own daughter. And so we work the text in a way to appease our offended conscience. But the fact is, and you can check this out historically and and read on this, the fact is almost all Jewish literature and rabbinical views on this story say that he did, in fact, sacrifice his daughter, that it was a rash vow, that he regretted it, but nevertheless he followed through with it. Which is why in the Jewish literature... Jewish historic literature, he is seen, even even to this day in, in Jewish literature, he is seen as foolish, ignorant, and among the worst of the judges, and in the Jewish Midrash. Now, the Midrash is not scripture, but it is a Jewish ancient commentary on the Old Testament scriptures. And in the Jewish Midrash, it says that God's punishment for Jephthah was to cause, quote, his flesh to decay and his limbs to fall off, end quote. Okay, so that's, that's Jewish literature. That's rabbinical um, thought. And it's very, you know, our, again, our Western mindset is, oh, that could never happen. But rabbinical and Jewish literature say, oh, yes, it probably did. And it is a reason why in verse 40 that it says that there was an annual remembrance of her where they would lament. That's the word that is used there. And that word lament in the Hebrew is only used twice in all of the Old Testament and both times it is used in the book of Judges. So it is, it's a, a very unique word and it is hard to understand whether lament means they just you know, mourn the fact that she was no longer with them and that she was living in the tabernacle or that she had actually died. Now, I think it is probable. I lean towards, because when, I, when, I, when you look at culture, you have to look at culture and context in which the scriptures were written. So I personally tend to lean of the opinion that I think he did sacrifice her. 
I think, again, that he regretted it. He, he thought this is horrible that he made such a rash vow, but that he ended up uh, doing that. And, and I just want to say this, and we'll pick up, because like, I've got three important points about what we can learn from Jephthah's vow that we need to understand about our words and promises and vows that we make. And I'm going to save that, but I, I want to just end on this point because we've run out of time. I think the hero in this story is the daughter. Because whatever ended up happening to her, whether she ended up living out her life in the tabernacle, devoted to the Lord, dedicated to the Lord, or whether she was literally sacrificed here, she's incredibly courageous, and she is willing to help her father keep his word, that she would give up either her freedom or her very life because she wants her dad to honor God with his word. I think she's the hero in this story. And there's much to learn from Jephthah's rash vow that he makes here. Thank you for joining us today here on Cornerstone Connection. You've been listening to a message from the book of Judges. It's a great reminder to the kid inside us to the human flesh that is a bent to fulfill its own desires. Whatever we do, someone always sees it. Nothing goes unnoticed, especially those things we wished had been overlooked. Isn't that the role of a parent, though, to discipline the behavior of sin? Jesus is the same way with the Israelite nation and us. He doesn't allow sin to go without consequence. But he's also lovingly fair and desires each one of us to return to him. Maybe you felt like that kid who's gotten off track with God. We can't be perfect, but we can pray that we'll have the strength to do what's right and follow in God's footsteps. Are you struggling with that? Would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry located in Leesburg, Virginia committed to sharing the love of Christ with you through sound biblical teachings that meet you where you're at. To find out more about us, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. That website again is cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for listening to this edition of Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know